there's a new split in the once rock-solid right-wing evangelical base. What does it all mean? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profits, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. Yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. In recent decades, evangelicals have been the Republican Party's most vital base. The largest Protestant denomination in the country is the very conservative Southern Baptist Convention Network of Churches. That's 47,500 churches and 14 million members. At their just-concluded convention in Nashville, our guest New Yorker contributing writer Eliza Griswold reports, The tensions that she saw reflect an emerging schism in what it means to be an evangelical, end of quote. Of the 15,000 crowded into the convention hall, one of the people in attendance, Keith Whitefield, shared his observation with you that the roiling of the SBC is a sign of a broader crisis within American Christianity. The SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, is a mirror for what's happening in American evangelicalism and the culture writ large. The emerging deep split was on display over the election of a new president of the SBC. The church was founded in 1845 to, as you say, safeguard the institution of slavery, subjugation being divinely ordained. The open drama at the 2021 meeting was about whether the church would continue its move to the hard right or try to broaden its reach. The denomination in recent years has been rocked by a series of internal controversies, most notably fights over the cover-up of sexual abuse in SBC churches and in the organization's approach to racism and critical race theory. Our guest, Eliza Griswold, is a contributing writer at The New Yorker, covering religion, politics, and the environment, and has been writing for The New Yorker since 2003. She won the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction for Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America in 2019. Her recent piece in The New Yorker is titled The Fight for the Heart of the Southern Baptist Convention, How the Convention's Battle Over Race Reveals an Emerging Evangelical Schism. Thanks so much for being with us, Eliza. Thank you for having me. The meeting was described in The New York Times as featuring, quote, unusually poisonous clashes by an organization that prides itself on the unity in the essentials of faith. The Republican Culture Wars playbook was front and center at this high-profile gathering of their broadest and most powerful base. Critical race theory, which you define very succinctly as, quote, a method of examining how the law perpetuates racial injustice. Critical race theory was highly controversial at the meeting in Nashville. One resolution endorsed by conservative members claimed that the CRT is rooted in neo-Marxist and postmodern worldviews. And as you write, last November, on the heels of the nationwide Black Lives Matter protest sparked by the murder of George Floyd, the president of SBC's six seminaries issued an incendiary statement calling uh, critical race theory incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. The SBC is not all white. Your article starts out 
relating a discussion you had with Pastor Dwight McKissick, who's an African-American at his home in Arlington, Texas, about the role that race plays in the growing divide among American evangelicals. I'm in the Northeast, and there are not a lot of Southern Baptists in these parts. It's different in the South. As you write, McKissick thought that it would be hard for an outsider to understand why he joined the SBC, which has a long and painful history around race. He told you much of the racism that he's encountered in the SBC was passive, McKissick said. But after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, he felt that the racist rhetoric became more overt. In light of this, please tell us about his unique quandary, Pastor Dwight McKissick. So Pastor McKissick lives in no modest home. His, he lives in a 6,000 square foot. Oh, my. Mega man. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In a truly Southern Baptist fashion um, on a cul-de-sac in Arlington, Texas. And he is an incredibly well-respected, uh, longstanding member of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, for the past 38 years, he has been a pastor within the Southern Baptist Convention for three to 4,000 people. Um, and he is beloved and influential. He is African-American and and incredibly conservative, politically conservative, um, theologically conservative, which is important to note because often that's what we're talking about with Southern Baptists. And we want to make sure that we don't get into divides over who is moderate and who is conservative, who is right, who is farther to the left, because that kind of language is exactly what we're seeing break down and begin to fracture and no longer adequately describe the emerging fissures within evangelicalism. So a theological conservative, uh, a stalwart Southern Baptist, a man of deep faith and deep principles, uh, Pastor McKissick was thinking that he could no longer faithfully remain a Southern Baptist if the Southern Baptists elected uh, one of the two hardliners mm -hmm. who openly opposed taking a hard look at racism among the Southern Baptists. And as you pointed out in your introduction, the Southern Baptist was a denomination founded explicitly to safeguard slavery in the 1840s, upheld um, the Confederacy, and has gone on and on in a series of racially motivated decisions uh, that are openly racist. So Pastor McKissick, now that the convention, to be fair, has long wrestled with its history and done so openly with a great deal of transparency, not a ton of accountability. That has been a, a stumbling point. And so Pastor McKissick was calling for greater accountability in addressing structural racism and most importantly to the Southern Baptists to not elect one of the men one who upheld the old way of doing things, which was to ignore racism and sexism in their midst. And there were three three people running for the presidency. There was Al Mohler, another arch-conservative named Mike Stone, and a third candidate, Ed Litton, who was a more mainstream conservative. Tell us a bit about these three contenders, and I, I believe Ed Litton uh, is the winner. There were four contenders, but oh, three four. who had a serious a chance at winning. Ed Litton, who did win, was not at all favored to do so. He is a, a soft-spoken pastor uh, who has a long history working with, with racial reconciliation it, within his um, diverse community. And he 
but he did not have anywhere near the profi profile or platform, especially Val Mueller, who, after Russell Moore, who recently left the Southern Baptist Convention, is the most famous Southern Baptist, certainly in America. He's often on TV, um, you know, as a cultural conservative, and he's very well known. Um, he's been the president of, of more than one. Uh, Southern Baptist Seminary. And so he was the favorite candidate going in. Mueller, very famously, uh, he stood up against the candidacy of Donald Trump. Um, and in uh -huh. 2016, he opposed Trump and he caught quite a lot of flack for that. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, he switched sides and supported Donald Trump's reelection bid. And I think he you know, many people, it was recently after he had announced his bid for elections that he was going to run for, for president of the Southern Baptist. Um, and it was hard for people to, I think, get around that change of heart. So that was one of the reasons that Al Mohler was not victorious among many. Uh, and as you pointed out, there's a even more theologically conservative, uh, old school fire and brimstone <laughs> pastor named Mike Stone, who had um, who had led a very high profile investigation within the SBC. Um, he's very, very pro-Trump um, and really opposed those who did not also um, support President Trump. He was thought to be possibly the, the candidate of choice. And then out of left field, Ed Litton, the man who was much more open about the need for the Southern Baptists to move forward into uh, deeper and, and authentic questions of right, racial reconciliation, he did emerge victorious. Ah, so a bit of a reflection uh, will be uh, part of the agenda, I guess. But Lytton, as we say, did win, but he's certainly of the political and cultural right, with his, especially with his attitudes toward the role of women in society and in the church. What are your observations about that choice and how the splits are likely to be affected by his ascendance? Well, I think, you know, when we talk about the role of women, so, you know, I very deliberately, the two main issues going into this convention were both the issue of structural racism and the issue of structural sexism, which in the SBC also has taken the form of sexual abuse. Um, because one of the things that, you know, that critics will argue is that um, critics will argue that the the forced submission of women, which is encoded around a principle called complementarianism. Now, complementarianism holds that men and women have divinely ordained roles by God, and that by maintaining these roles, they maintain the family. Now, you might imagine what the people who uphold this believe are, are these divinely ordained roles. They are right out of the 1950s or 19th century, depending on who you talk to. So, you know, and to support their arguments over this complementarianism, which, by the way, was a term coined in the late 1980s, um, huh. they, they uphold uh, – selective passages of scripture that are often called the Pauline letters that date back to, you know, the first centuries after Christianity, but thought to be written in the latter half of the first century by the apostle Paul to early members of the church. 
he was writing to members of the Roman Empire and many of the strictures that he, he you know, this this is this is where the Bible, when you hear, oh, the Bible supports slavery. This is a letter that of Paul's when you hear that women that somewhere the Bible says wives submit to your husbands, women be silent in church. This is all Paul. So um, this idea of women's submission, women's silence, that a woman, a woman cannot preach, teach, or lead mm-hmm. among the Southern Baptists is actually a somewhat new creation because we have, dating back into the early part of the 20th century, women that actually were ordained as priests, and they did preach in churches. But in the 60s and 70s, actually 70s and 80s, I think, to be the most accurate, um, we had what it, critics call the fundamentalist takeover, and fans called the conservative resurgence when the the SBC went through a contraction and women went backwards. So what we're seeing now is kind of a culmination of these, you know, nearly the past 50 years of a hardening stance against women. And things are weirdly getting even worse. So that what's happened to that cultural culture of complementarianism is that it now in extreme churches in the Southern Baptist, a woman is not allowed to teach Sunday school, not to boys, because this would be a violation of a woman's role. Uh, Working outside the home, similarly banned in extreme practices of complementarianism. And when you talk about who adheres to these ideas, we're not talking about some tiny sect in in the corner of some world. We're talking about tens of millions of Americans. So, that was a, a pretty long introduction to why this issue of women preaching, teaching, and leading has become so heated and and what it's called, which is complementarianism. And it is it is the second most fraught issue within the Southern Baptists. And it was a bit of a toss-up to know, I say second most, just because race came to the the fore first. But it could have been this this convention, and I would I would wager next year's will be all about um, sexism and sexism in the church. And there, there's a, allegations of cover-up of sexual abuse in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention churches. And I, what, where does that go from here? Do you think? And is that is that going to is that accepted? I guess in complementarianism, maybe it don't, they don't see it as sexual abuse and covering. Well, it up. no, the, the so there's a long history of sexual abuse within the Southern Baptists. A lot of it is tied to leadership at the seminaries, in particular, a man named Paige Patterson, um, who, again, incredibly influential Southern Baptist, was president of the convention. Um, Patterson is alleged to have both covered up and really mishandled um, claims of sexual abuse and rape um, at seminaries where he was in charge. Um, And just if you watch any of Paige Patterson's uh, sermons, you just see uh, he speaks about women in such a demeaning way that, I mean, if he worked in a in a place of business, he would be fired. You wouldn't even get a you, you couldn't talk about women that way. I mean, commenting on um, the sexuality of 16 year old girls, really. And we're talking about a man standing in a mega church talking to, you know, tens of thousands of people. So so what what? Many members um, and critics argue is that this culture of misogyny that so dominant and the lack of accountability among Southern Baptists has enabled a culture where abuse has thrived. And 
in that culture also, the Southern Baptists upheld it. There's a, a, I don't want to take us too far afield, but it's probably worth mentioning that there's a whole idea called purity culture, which may or may not be familiar to your listeners, which has to do with girls not having boys too, but focuses on a girl's sexuality and a girl remaining a virgin before marriage. Mm-hmm. This got super big in the 80s. It was explicitly promoted by the Southern Baptists. Um, and this too is part of culture of abuse within church because you have pastors taking advantage of this for both boys and girls. Um, You know, there's a very famous um, infamous case of a pastor touching young boys in a hot tub saying that he was going to teach them. Yeah. It's uh, ugly, ugly stuff because this is what sexual repression leads to. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And enables and enables in a, in a culture of secrecy and shame, sexual abuse flourishes. So, it is that culture of secrecy and shame uh, that many are calling to change within the Southern Baptist. But I do, to be fair, I, you know, I think we just have to say, as we've seen over the past several decades, especially when we talk about the Catholic Church, sexual abuse, you know, the Southern Baptists have no monopoly on sexual abuse <laughs> in sure. the church, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, and it, it'd be interesting to see where this goes from here. If they, you know, there's this big culture called America, but there's the Southern Baptist Convention is a big culture as well. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Eliza Griswell, contributing writer for The New Yorker, who's got a recent piece titled The Fight for the Heart of the Southern Baptist Convention, How the Convention's Battle Over Race Reveals an Emerging Evangelical Schism. And there, it's a big, big denomination. It's the largest Protestant denomination in America. And Greg Thornbury is a prominent scholar of evangelical Christian philosophy and theology, and he's written that Trump awoke this white nationalist DNA that has always been there in the Southern Baptist Convention, end of quote. Trump obviously thrived from this energetic support from Southern evangelicals. You write that some convention members were shocked at what they saw at Trump's openly xenophobic, racist, and sexist rhetoric but those who criticized him faced swift backlash. Trump is gone now, sort of. Uh, tell us about, about that, please, and, and the, uh, the, the sentiment that, that you felt there with regard to uh, the concern that uh, some of the people at the convention uh, had. Yeah, so when we, talk about, when we talk about white nationalism in America, we need to talk explicitly about Christian nationalism because— yes. When we look at the evolution of these ideas that America is a white Christian nation, you know, we can trace the history of those ideas back to the arrival of the Puritans. You know, the city on the hill is right. And Mm -hmm. certainly through the ideas of manifest destiny, you know, that that. Westward, westward expansion, um, you know, stealing the land of indigenous people. All of this was part of God's divine plan to Christianize um, to Christianize this land, right? So, there are there are expressions of this that date back before the nation's founding um, here, you know, in the United States, and then we see periods of resurgence. And we see this come really up, obviously, through the Cold War, right? This idea of America as a Christian nation under threat, uh, under existential threat from godless atheistic communism and the Christian right 
coalescing around this idea um, really becomes quite dominant. And when, you know, this is, there's a, there's a, I mean, it cannot be underestimated this way that these ideas have it among so many Americans. And yet we, we who are not of this school of thinking and of this theology, very, of this culture, very rarely see it. Right. But the, so over the decades since the since the 80s and in the 90s um, and really, really in the lead up to Trump and under Trump, the Christian right took a new form and, and created a new basically a new mandate, a new map for its for attempts to hold greater influence in America. And, and a lot of that influence, they focused on state legislatures and, and state bills, right? So, you know, what we have seen is the evolution of political power on a state and local level of people who hold views that really, I mean, I wrote the, my last piece was about a state senator in Pennsylvania named Doug Mastriano who bust, you know, six loads of, of, of protesters down to the Capitol riots, right? This man is running for governor, right? So, so these ideas and their danger predate Donald Trump. Um, They certainly were given new, they were given new prominence and a new permission to exist out in the open under Trump. But what Trump also did was create a new, when, when, Donald Trump talked about Christian nationalism. He was began to talk about Christian nationalism in the terms uh, that that the extreme right in Europe does. Christian was a was a code word for white. It was no longer a religious term. And so we've seen the evolution of a dangerous form of this Christian nationalism that is very much in line with just straight up white supremacy. And that has flourished at the edges of the Christian right. Um, so we see it newly resurgent in state legislatures among, you know, in the courts, obviously. Um, we also see a newly empowered far right that has recast itself no longer as Aryan or, you know, mm-hmm. going to follow fa- fascism is unfashionable, but Christianity and Christian nationalism is very much in vogue. Uh, um, so that is some of what we're seeing large. Ah, very interesting. And th- this religious nationalism, it's a very powerful uh, energy that, that's coming up. Trump had it, uh, uh, the former uh, attorney general had it, and it, th- there's a lot of power behind it. And I, I wonder how the QAnon people, the Oath Keepers, etc., and other January 6th insurrectionists would have felt at that convention. And is there general agreement that they prefer religious nationalism over a Republican form of government? Is it that clear? It's not. They aren't. They don't divide it out like that. So, you know, um, there are certainly so many people within the Southern Baptist Convention who are people of deep faith and deep integrity, right? Um, and alongside that, and you you saw this with some of the coverage about the pirates and the populace coming to, to retake the convention, right? Alongside that, we have, you know, no demographic in America is more susceptible to QAnon theory than church-going evangelical Christians. So 
you have a population, a ready audience for conspiracy theory that already distrusts mainstream media and is willing to believe that God, that, that if democracy, so here's where this gets slippery. This is not, democracy is dangerous if it has been hijacked by secular people. Democracy, because democracy is supposed to be driven by God, right? So on January 6th, one of the things that we saw a great deal of were there were these flags that said appeal to heaven flags, right? What is that? That is George Washington. So this idea of being part of the founding of the nation and George Washington had a a group of soldiers who carried these flags um, and Essentially, it an appeal to heaven. God has the right to remove the tyranny of men, and a secular democracy that has been hijacked um, by people who are godless, in in terms of the thinking of many many um, white nationalists, and I wouldn't say mainstream, but but we're talking in you know upper 20s, 30% of American evangelicals believe such a government is illegitimate and that it is part of their God-given duty to restore, um, you know, the the ideals, Christian ideals to America. Well, that's interesting stuff. It's a little, you know, and uh, I do think, uh, you know, we may be one country, but it seems like we're a lot of different nations here, really. But uh, this nation is not insignificant. And... Um, you spoke also with Keith Whitfield, a theology professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said people are now sorting themselves into churches that align more with their political political ideology than their theology, end of quote. And he told you that the divisions within the SBC are a sign of a broader crisis within American Christianity, that there is an emerging schism in what it means to be an evangelical. Well, the least radical right-winger got elected president. I I don't imagine that the divisions are settled. What do you see going forward? Are the divisions getting stronger, more more divided, or is it pretty much still unified in this uh, religious nationalism and, uh, you know, that, that the tyranny of man is not okay? Right. So I think we're going to see a few things. So I think, you know, when we talk about schisms, we're talking about a fracturing of, we're talking about the breakdown of institutions, right? And essentially, even though the Southern Baptists are try to be the most horizontal organization in the world, they are an institution. And the, and the question is, not even will the center hold, will, will the Southern Baptists hold? And what does it matter? What does it matter if the Southern Baptists split? What does it matter if evangelicalism, as we understand it, no longer just simply means the Republican Party as it has come to be. It's important because we are talking of the faith of as many as 80 million Americans, right? Um, And the ideas that pervade so much of our political discourse without our even understanding it. It isn't simply that the Southern Baptists are are splitting in two or that they're going to be two new camps of anything at all. The 
the fracturing of identities among the Southern Baptists, as as Keith Whitfield pointed out, and Ed Stetzer does as well, um, who is a very, he's the director of the Wheaton College Graham Evangelical Center and a very influential evangelical leader in America. We're seeing new identities form in a crisis for moral authority. So it's not just between theological conservatives and political conservatives. We're also seeing a newly resurgent evangelical, progressive evangelical movement, which was really the beginning of evangelicalism in the 20th century. The first politically motivated American evangelicals in the 20th century were those we might call on the left. Mm. They were motivated by civil rights um, in the 60s. What happens in the 70s and 80s is that first under the banner of support for segregation, conservative Republican um, strategists, so political strategists and Jerry Falwell, among other Southern pastors, deliberately teamed up to create a voting block. And instead of making that voting block center on segregation, they chose abortion as their enemy. Yes. Um, So we that was a political decision rather than a theological one. Right. So we're seeing that Christian right die. And as that Christian right dies, we're seeing new expressions of the faith that aren't necessarily new, um, but they're newly emergent and they're re-emergent. And that to me is pretty exciting because that means that what it means to be a person of deep faith in America um, is changing. And and we see plenty of data coming out all the time about, you know, for like – very recently this year, there was a study that showed, you know, for the first time in modern history, 47 percent, less than half of Americans um, belong to churches. Right. That's new. We're seeing, you know, numbers of people who adhere to what traditional religious identification and, and affiliation, they're dropping radically. I think on the outside, um, it can look to people like, oh, America's growing more secular but those of us who spend our lives watching these things just see that the old definitions no longer fit and new forms of, of following Jesus are particularly emergent. And, and that I will say for, with a firm mercy to it is pretty fun to watch. Wow. That is interesting. And one can see where that's coming from because I, mean, I, I am not a follower of Jesus, but uh, appreciate him. <laughs> and uh, it, to, to look at what the, the various churches have done as opposed to what Jesus was about, there, I know I've seen a little bit of evangelical drift toward, say, environmentalism, that people, that we humans are stewards of God's creation. And I think my sense is, I don't know if that showed itself there at the convention, but I, I can't help but think that that movement is uh, rising within the uh, evangelicals. What's your sense of that? Yes, I think that's another that's an another emerging what's what's at issue here is the moral heart, right? When 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 we talk about when the New York talk of, talks about what's the heart of the Southern Baptist, we're talking about the moral heart. And as reality um around, you know, shifting temperature and 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 For science sure. becomes more prevalent, those who are willing who deeply, deeply believe as, you know, what we who watch this stuff sometimes call that they themselves call creation care, stewardship, you know, that to be 
according to the Bible, you know, the scripture lays out that that humans have dominion over the land. Well, that means that humans have responsibility to be stewards, good stewards of of nature. And so, yes, you might say, how can people who call themselves Bible believing, um, who believe, you know, who oppose some aspects of science, see that climate is a pressing reality? There's certainly a growing number of people who do. So that is part of the emerging wrestle we are seeing within evangelicalism. Boy, it is fascinating, and it's a big, big uh, effect on America's future, given that there's 80 million uh, evangelicals in America. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Eliza Griswold, who is a contributing writer for The New Yorker, who covers religion, politics, and the environment. And her recent piece was uh, The Fight for the Heart of the Southern Baptist Convention, How the Convention's Battle Over Race Reveals an Emerging Evangelical uh, schism. And and you you also talk about Pastor Seth Martin, whose congregation is an eight-minute walk from where George Floyd was murdered. You write that after Floyd was killed, Martin had tried to mobilize white Southern Baptist pastors to join the protests, hosting several at his home, but they resisted taking up the cause. What, what did uh, Seth Martin tell you was so hard for them. What did he have to say about that? You know, the language that that some of these pastors employ, um, not, Seth Martin was very frustrated, understandably so, that the that people who he had worshipped alongside for decades and who had supported his African-American church, um, it, they call it church planting, that when you start a new church, um, were not willing to come alongside him and fellow um, African-Americans in speaking out against the murder of George Floyd and police violence. And I think for him, that reckoning, that inability of those who say that they are motivated by, you know, not only God's love, but creating God's kingdom here on earth could look at, you know, children uh, and being killed by the police and not speak up about this as unjust. And for him, I think that just was truly a breaking point because there is, it was such, it was, it was personal. And that I think is a really important factor in this story like when, so, you know, critical race theory in so many ways, it's, it's just the latest boogeyman, right? Yeah. Like, like 10 years ago, you could have called it, you know, uh, secular hu- humanism, you know, in the seventies, you could have called it feminism, like the latest liberal boogeyman for the right to try to whip up fair, uh, to try to whip up fear and fer- fervor, right? Around this perceived threat. The difference with critical race theory, uh, one of the many, is that to deny it is to say to African-American members of the SBC, you have not experienced racism. Racism isn't real. And that was a level of personal aggression, Mm. personal that that just feminism just didn't have the same personal sting. And I think for Seth Martin, certainly for Dwight McKissick, to have their experience as African-Americans 
their experience of racism denied by their own church was simply a bridge too far. So I think that's important to see with critical race theory as we see so many people begin to break down. Why, why is it so threatening to the right? Well, why is it so painful to those who have experienced it? Because it is a primary way to deny that their experience is real. Mm. And I do I like your description of uh, critical race theory, which it does confuse some people. As you say, it's a method of examining how the law perpetuates racial injustice. Good summation, best I've heard. Now, last January, Dwight McKissick wrote an article titled, We Are Getting Off the Bus. Tell us, please, about what he meant and, and the backlash it received and, and what he thinks is a way that racism can best be addressed within the Southern Baptist Convention. So, so McKissick, Pastor McKissick wrote that letter after, as you pointed out, that, you know, th there's a lot of jargon here. So I'm just to give very broad strokes in 2019. So at, at the convention, um, critical race theory came up for the first time, basically. That's and right. in an attempt, yeah, and in an attempt to basically to bring everybody together, a resolution was drafted that said, you know, look, racism is real and critical race theory is not fully consistent with the Bible. So it basically was designed to, if not please everybody or satisfy them, to just make people move on. What happened in, and, and that passed, that was okay. That was, everything was okay. 2020, there is no convention because of COVID. And in the fall of 2020, uh, six, the, all, all the major leaders of the Southern Baptist schools, which are these six seminaries, signed this letter basically saying critical race theory is, yeah, as, as you quoted, inconsistent with the, the Baptist faith and message, which means like we cannot use it at all. And, it's anti-Bible, basically. Once that letter was circulated, which was seen as incendiary and unnecessary, like why did they circulate that letter besides to polarize people? Dwight McKissick wrote that wrote why we're getting off the bus. Okay. And he again pretty quickly the Southern Baptists have different state offices. So the Texas state office of and state delegation of the Southern Baptists also wrote something very critical of critical race theory, which is why McKissick left the Texas branch. Okay, so he leaves the Southern Baptist of Texas, but he stays part of a national affiliation. And that's what he stayed until this, until this convention now. But he writes this thing, we're getting off the bus, and he gets a, a drastic amount of sort of pushback from people. And most shockingly, but not to him very shocking, was a letter written was a was such an openly horrifically racist letter written by a former southern baptist um that that i quote in the piece and won't quote here but that just it's it's so vile and shocking that such a letter would be written in 2021 um but as pastor mick has pointed out to him it wasn't shocking this hmm. is what underlies the ideas of the unwillingness to look at structural racism within the SBC is in, is in itself racist. And so what he pointed out is those who don't want us to look at structural racism in our among our members really are not so far from the writer of this racist letter. 
That's a pretty long description, but I hope a helpful contextual one. And what should be done about racism within the Southern Baptist is certainly not for me, you know, uh, right? Uh, New Yorker observer (laughs) to hold forth. But I will tell you, there are certainly extremely well-informed, sensitive, thoughtful um, people of deep experience and moral courage within the Southern Baptist. Among them is Dwight McKissick, Keith Whitfield, and others who, and certainly Ed Litton. If if the Southern Baptists have Mm. a chance at redemption, at repenting their past and redeeming their future, Ed Litton is their best current shot at doing so. Well, interesting that, uh, and, and certainly the courage and, and the dedication to theology rather than, you know, just uh, political conservatism. you got to respect that. Uh, even, you know, I'm not a political conservative, but it's, it's impressive that people like McKissick and so many others stick with it. You describe concerns about indoctrination of children against conservative values, that they were expressed there. Of course, in the Trump era, facts took a backseat to beliefs. At the SBC's 2019 convention, a statement was put forth that, as you describe, acknowledged incompatibilities between biblical teachings and academic theory. How did that issue, uh, belief versus actual academics, how did that show itself to you at the convention? Okay, so this quote, I love that your your point of view was so accurately revealed when you said belief versus actual academics, because for the majority of Southern Baptists, the influence would be exactly the opposite, right? Yes. Because so, so this is a longer standing idea and this dates back to this, the, this, we could even take it back to the Scopes trial, but I'm going to spare your readers. I mean, your listeners and just take it back to the seventies. So this is okay. We have, my last show the was Southern, about the Scopes trial, just to interject, but go ahead. Okay, all right. So, okay, so basi- basically the Southern Baptists, what happens, I'll, where I'll say is, what happens in the 1920s is that we have evolution creates a crisis it, for American Protestants who are conservative, theologically conservative, right? right. What yeah, are they going to sure. do? Is evolution real or is it not, Right. You have a whole group who call themselves fundamentalists. They say they're going back to the teachings of the Bible and evolution is anti-biblical. Well, the Southern Baptists don't do that, okay? They say it is possible to believe in both the Bible and evolution. They make that room for their members, okay? So so we want to give them that. We want to give them that and say that is— if we see a move of rejecting evolution as anti-intellectual, that is not where the Southern Baptists are. And throughout really much of the 20th century, and we're not ever talking about moderates or liberals, like when we're talking about looser definitions of conservatism. And there were some schisms. Mm. People split off from the Southern Baptists because they were like, hey, we're ordaining women. We're sick of this nonsense. We're sick of this racism. And these major numbers of churches split off. Okay. Then we have this thing, which I've mentioned before in the 70s and the 80s, the conservative resurgence. And it's basically a hostile takeover. And it is fundamentalists who take over the convention. Right. So from that point onward, we've seen the co-option of what is really cultural conservatism, that 1950s submission of women, um, republicanism, right? 
spread by and not to small numbers. I mean, we think about people like James Dobson. We think about, you know, who was the founder of Focus on the Family, you know, 1977. He's got tens of millions of Americans listening every day to his radio shows, right? So the kind of thinking that is dominant within this tradition that also says to itself, we are an embattled minority because we are the true believers, is in fact dominant Christian culture, and it's extremely co-opted by materialism. I mean, we're talking Mm. about selling t-shirts, devotionals, you know, Bible studies, pink Bibles, pink guns, whatever, in the name of this denomination and then the name of believing in Jesus. And that is a lot of the story that's emerging now. And that, that critical, we could call it academic, we could call it historical criticism, that more histor- historical critical look at 20th century modern evangelicalism, which is emerging in the work of people like uh, Kristen Dumay and Jesus and John Wayne, uh, Beth Allison Barr, her making of biblical womanhood. Um, these critical looks at what the forces of nature are that have made this so-called belief in Bible, these are part of what is pulling um, evangelicalism apart. Wow, it is being pulled apart. An interesting timing. In the, it was in the late 70s when the uh, the National Rifle Association experienced a takeover as well, kind of a hostile takeover by uh, kind of right-wing people. It all was happening at the same time, and I'm sure that should be looked at. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're speaking with Eliza Griswold, who's written an article in The New Yorker titled The Fight for the Heart of the Southern Baptist Convention. She just returned from that. How the convention's battle over race reveals an emerging evangelical schism and some it's interesting that some southern baptists have returned to the tenets that were held before the hardliners took over in the 70s and 80s what's your sense of uh, any kind of sense of, of percentage of the people there that, that are okay. trying to go back yeah no no not that i think i want to be careful in asserting some of these emerging schisms that we don't get in front of the data, because I've been trying to put some numbers onto what we're really seeing, and it's a little bit too early and too mushy to do so. Also, to clarify, I did not attend the convention, and Uh. that was 100% deliberate, and I was so grateful that Dwight McKissick sat in his garage in Arlington, um, and therefore I did not have to tootle down to Nashville. Um, Simply just, you know, to be honest, at this point, among among a majority, among the demographic who is most hostile to the ideas of vaccination um, at this point. You know, it was just not a place I personally wanted to be. Yeah, I can see. (laughs) But so do you think that, what's your sense from what you've gleaned and and researched into it? Is is it that the hardliners are still in charge? Are they losing their grip? You know, percentage-wise, you know, Ed Linton really eked it out. It was extremely close between yeah. Linton and and the farther, you know, the the I'm the hardliner Mike Stone um, and Al Mohler, you know, the sort of consensus long term guy really didn't even make it to the second round of voting. So my assessment is that the energy and conviction among those who are asserting a a resurgent moral authority, right? Who are saying, hang on a second, when did believing in Jesus mean believing in Donald Trump? Um, Trump just served as a real catalyst 
for, you know, shaking up, you know, what was already happening, what had already happened entirely. He just showed how far it had actually gone. Mm. Um, so I think there is, I don't, the numbers are too tricky. You know, that sure. I, this is, you know, I literally, you know, try to noodle this most days. What does this mean numerically? I think what is exciting is the idea of new allegiances, maybe not just among, you know, those Bible-believing Christians who say, I'm no longer willing to support the Republican Party. That's certainly, that's that's a, an exciting schism. But the idea is also that for, for many young people who grew up in conservative evangelicalism and who are no longer willing to sign up to conservative culture, but are not willing either to leave their deep belief in Jesus behind, will this strain and school of emerging evangelicalism become will, will it grow as as people find it that to me is the more exciting question and that's what that's what i'm trying to watch in real time right which way is the growth happening one one, yeah. one has hopes how i wonder how important just politically is a theological cover uh for the extreme right that trump espoused how important is that do you think politically what do you mean? Well, a theological cover, you know, like having uh, the churches. And uh, I, I noticed a lot of the people, certainly at January 6th and in general, uh, have this sense that Trump was sent by God. And, yes. and he has not uh, walked away from that, to put it mildly. How important do you think that is? I mean, just looking at the political realities here, you know, aside from the, the theological and the, uh, the actual religious, but how important is that cover, do you think, for the power of the extreme right? I think it's essential. I, I think it's essential. I, I don't, I think without it, there's no cover for the racism and misogyny that underlies it, right? Um, so I think without some sort of false moral claim here, um, I don't know what buy-in would look like. Now, that said, that's a pretty limited view of history on my own part, because we've certainly seen reactionary, regressive, racist forces, political forces arise without having to, you know, yeah. cloak themselves in some but have we, we there's usually some kind of cloak of virtue and in america that cloak of virtue is the bible <laughs> i don't think uh george wallace had that but maybe he did i, I don't know that was a long, i don't know <laughs> it's a long time ago well young, yeah well, young people are crucial to the future of any and every social political and cultural movement a powerful figure among young americans these days is Taylor Swift, who addressed homophobic right-wing evangelical people in a song called You Need to Calm Down. I, I don't know the song, but what's happening with the young people in the uh, uh, Southern Baptist Convention family? Well, generally we're seeing young people leave evangelicalism. Or, See, this is where we're getting it wrong, because if you look at studies you know, by the excellent research done by the Pew Forum, among, among others, you would get a sense that America is becoming radically more secular. 
people are leaving their traditional religion, their traditional affiliations. They're leaving their churches. And I just don't think that's true. I think we I think by asserting that we risk making the same mistake we made before Mm. 9-11 when we thought, oh, the world is growing more secular. Nobody really believes in God. And that couldn't have been more wrong. Um, So so we do see there's plenty of data to suggest that that in droves young evangelicals are no longer adhering they're leaving the churches they're leaving their old forms of belief but what are they going to that is the trickier question Ah. without really looking closely at that data and scrutinizing it it might look like they're you know just going to the movies now instead of church but I will tell you on the ground, that's not what it looks like. It looks like they are going to church. They're mm-hmm. just going to their new church. And the new church is called, you know, the table, the the offspring, the, you know, something inspirational and mm-hmm. anodyne. And it's got a much broader tent. It doesn't, it, the homophobia, the misogyny, the racism, if not rooted out, are at least active struggles. These are socially justice-minded young Christians who are still evangelical mm-hmm. if if you define that as really believing in the primacy of Jesus, right? Believing that they are going to heaven, although that too is a complicated construct. Um, that but they they are going to be they are offered salvation through surrendering their life to live and work as Jesus did. And I will tell you a lot of that is quite beautiful um, yes. and incredibly energetic. So so one thing I do think we get wrong in the mainstream media too, and to our peril, is to discount evangelicals because they look to us like anti-intellectual carrying an inspirational mug watching church on TV and not not very plugged in. And we are going to learn at our peril that to respect that what people say they believe, they believe. And it's not our job right. uh, to explain that belief away. Uh, so that's that's kind of what my daily life is like. You know, I often sit down with people and have to say and think I'm going to get through an interview just articulating their beliefs. And I rarely get out the door without somebody saying, and what do you believe? And having to articulate my own and finding that in my sort of scattered grab bag of, you know, of half formed thoughts, you know, I sound as woo woo as anybody else. And it's that kind of humility. I think that it takes to really write about religion um, because it's too easy to explain it away as a matter of social or political economy. Um, and that really isn't what motivates people. And the, and people's deep moral center is not going away. And I just don't think that yes. that's turning secular either. I couldn't agree more. That's been my observation. You can't attack people's beliefs. You can't you can't try to teach them and correct them. It's just it's not going to work. It's a or bad... quietly think you know better. Or <laughs> quietly think you know better. That is also a danger. It certainly is. I, and uh, MSNBC opinion columnist Anthea Butler wrote that after decisions are made this week at the convention, the clash between hardline evangelical conservatives and evangelical moderates is an important prognosticator of the 2022 election cycle, which has already started. Do you think she's right? And and if so, what does that portend for the 2022 election? Any guess? So just to call out Anthea Butler, who is the uh, 
just a remarkable writer and scholar, and she has a really excellent book that's recently come out called White Evangelical Racism. So so she's an MSNBC commentator, but she's also the head of the religion department at Penn. Um, do I think that it's an important measure for the 2022 election? Look, this this has been a long this. OK, there's been a long standing political wager and battle to shave off the edge of evangelicals from the hard right. Okay. And, and often this is cast in sort of an interesting way, which is, especially on the issue of race, many evangelicals in their opposition, especially young ones in their opposition to abortion and their pro-life political and theological leanings have adopted children of color. And so many, so you have young white evangelicals who remain staunchly theologically conservative, who no long, who may not believe women should be pastors, and most don't, but they also don't believe in structural racism, and they see it as their job to fight it. So that, when we see that demographic, that's the demographic Anthea is talking about. Can mm-hmm. that? that group be split off from the Republican Party? That is the billion-dollar question. <laughs> it happened to some degree. It really did with Biden. Um, mm. But it's unclear whether really the faithful changed sides with Biden or just he was able to uh, uh, shave off other other demographic margins. Well, it's always interesting, always unexpected uh, outcomes in uh, politics. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Eliza Griswold. Uh, if uh, people want to read more of your stuff, it's called The New Yorker. That small magazine. Yes, but you know what? <laughs> what? For Southern Baptists, when you call a Southern Baptist pastor, you certainly humbly say it's called The New Yorker, because chances are they haven't heard of it. <laughs> and humility, I think, is is a a. a a strain throughout um, many, many religions, and it's a very good thing, in my opinion. Thank you Absolutely. so much for being with us today, Eliza Griswold. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me, Bart. Oh, yeah.
Oh, yeah.